Emiliano Estacado. Two men camped in a barren patch amongst the sagebrush. One American, one Mexican. The Mexican was called Al by his companion, who was now going by Bill. Their horses towed the earth in the gathering darkness, away from the fire. It's still strange, said Bill. All this quiet. I know it, said Al. I mean, I feel downright exposed out here without a whole wall of cattle boxing us in. You miss him, the Mexican grinned, twisted his toothpick with his bottom jaw. I don't miss the smell of him. Bill laughed and snapped a twig to have something to do with his hands. He tossed it into the flames. The mauve engine of the fire was reflected in the remnants of the sunset gathered at the horizon. Venus shone lucid in the pale yellow dusk. Bill eyed the land behind him to the east. You reckon there are any Comanche out there? Doubt it, said Al. Bill spat into the fire. Why's that? Why would they bother? We already dumped the cattle. You reckon they'd ride all the way out here just to kill the two of us? Bill worked his tongue down into his jaw. Well, that's what I'd do. He dug at the earth with the heel of his boot. You wouldn't go rustle no cattle? Make an easy buck? Bill looked at Al and then back into the fire. Me? Nah. Blackened spit etched the outline of his half-cocked grin. Somewhere in the distance, a pack of coyotes wound themselves into a feverish cacophony of yipping and yowling. The moon rose bright and clear. Them fuckers been following us this whole drive. Coyotes or Comanche? Bill shrugged. Al grinned. We'll be back at the ranch by supper tomorrow. I'm sure Mrs. Corman will fix you a plate. You watch. Our scalps will be dry next to them coals by sunrise. Then how come we ain't seen a single one of them? Bastards is sneakier in hell, you know that. Bill took a last sip of coffee, examined the dark tetris swirling around the bottom of his mug, and flicked it over his shoulder. How else do you explain losing damn near two dozen head? How indeed, said Al. Bill took no notice of Al's glare and leaned back, fingers webbed behind his head, to look at the stars. You got any work lined up in San Antonio? asked Al. Sure don't, said Bill. Would you like some? What sort? Robin stagecoaches? Bill laughed. Not exactly what I had in mind. Easy work. I already know the driver. The whole thing's been arranged. What do you need me for, then? Well, you sleep with that thing every night. Al gestured at Bill's lap where he kept his pistol tucked beneath a blanket. I have to imagine you'd be convincing enough with it in a stick-up for any witnesses. I don't know what kind of man you take me for, said Bill. I took you for a man who wanted to get paid. Perhaps I was mistaken? Bill sat up, eyed the man across the fire. I'm not going to do this shit forever, said Al. I've got a family. I've got plans. What plans? Business plans. Plans that need money. More money than you make driving cattle three times a year, that's for sure. Bill ran his thumb and forefinger over his mustache. 
Al took a piece of jerky from his pack. I'm going to buy some land up in Kansas and start a ranch of my own. Well, I'll be damned, said Bill. The horses began to stamp and whine. A stranger appeared at the edge of the firelight. Neither man had heard him approach. Evening, he said. Don't mean to alarm. He wore a pair of dusty leather work gloves tucked into his suspenders. What do you want? asked Al. Nothing from your pockets, friend. Just the warmth of your fire if you're willing to spare it. Al gripped the handle of his revolver beneath his own blanket. What brings you out here? asked Bill. The man motioned over his shoulder. Running barbed wire, he said. I took a nap after lunch and when I woke up it was dark. I got all turned around. How much that pay? asked Bill. Five dollars a day? Bill looked at Al. Shoot, hard to beat that? Al eyed the stranger. For who? Anglo-American Cattle Company, said the man. It's lonely work, but I don't mind it. You don't need to use your brain too much. They pay you out every day over there? That's right. You're running your fences here? Asked Al. Yes, sir. I think you may be lost. I've been grazing cattle here for a dozen years. Afraid not. How the hell do you expect 2,000 head of cattle to make it to Santa Fe if you put up a damn fence? The man shrugged. I suppose next season you could try taking him to Wichita. That's 300 miles farther. May I have a seat? The man laid a blanket out beside the fire. If my boss was here, I'd have to give both of you fellas the boot. He grinned at each of them as he settled in. His hand reached into the leather satchel which he carried over his shoulder. Crisp clink-clank of Bill's thumb pulling back the hammer of his revolver. What you got in the bag, friend? The stranger froze, and then, delicately, produced a tin of tobacco from the satchel. Smoke? Neither man accepted. The stranger rolled a cigarette for himself and kept it between his lips, unlit. I ain't armed, if that's what you're asking. Guess I shouldn't be disclosing that to you fellas quite so soon after meeting, but in the interest of friendship, he held open for them his near-empty satchel. Mi amigo, I believe you are being robbed. The stranger looked at his hosts, scanning them for a hint of jest, offering them a moment to recant. They demurred. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint, he scoffed in the expression of a man who wished he had something to his name worth stealing and dumped the meager contents of his satchel onto the dust in front of the fire. Where's your pay? I told you, I ain't been back to the ranch to collect. It's Friday, you got at least a whole week's pay somewhere. Let me see your pockets, the man obliged. I posted everything I had yesterday. Got a wife and kids in Houston. The cattleman's gun, grew heavy in his hand, went limp. Wait a minute, said the stranger, wagging his finger in satisfaction. I know your face. You're Earl Jameson. Bill shook his head. I believe you have me confused. No, no, I'm sure of it. They got your face up on posters on just about every building in town. Bill's eyes darted to Al for a brief moment beating in the light of the fire. Cattle rustler, reward. The stranger gazed into the fire as if the poster were written there upon the flames. 
Now that's bullshit, said Bill. Those bastards in San Antonio have got it out for me. And I guess that would make you Al Montoya. Al's expression turned suddenly stern. How do you figure to know a thing like that? I spoke to Mr. Corman just the other day. He was up talking to the men from Anglo-American. The unlit cigarette bobbed as he spoke. Hell, he said he doesn't even mind moving his cattle farther east. He's downright sick of the cattle rustlers out here, sick of having to pay out of pocket for fellows to track down the thieves. Said you boys lost near two dozen head this drive. He eyed Al with a half grin, the spittle-damp cigarette drooping listlessly over the distorted shadow it cast on his chin. In the treacherous, flickering glow of the fire, his teeth took on an almost sharp quality, as though he had a mouthful of incisors. He glanced at Bill. But maybe I've said too much already. Bill looked at Al and back at the stranger. The man finally lit his cigarette. Now how's a thing like that happen? He spoke out of the side of his mouth, puffing smoke. Two dozen head. He told you all that, said Al. Folks tell me things all the time, all sorts of things. The coyotes started again, closer now. Bill flinched. It weren't no rustlers, he said. When he looked at Al now, it was in search of support. What kind of rustler you ever know would leave a bull looking like that? Looking how, exactly? The stranger leaned forward, his eyes aflame with intrigue. Al sighed, shook his head. Shit, like nothing I ever seen before in my goddamn life. Skin completely clean and totally bloodless. Head, here he waved his hand flat-palmed across his throat and stood upright in the dirt. He spat. Even the flies wouldn't touch him. You startle far too easily, mi amigo, said Al. You reckon it was a prank? asked the stranger. No way in hell, said Bill. It was Comanche. If not them, then the devil himself's been following us across this desert. Not likely, said Al. Sounds like the work of an expert in any case, said the stranger. How do you figure? asked Bill. Totally drained of blood, but not a drop of mess. Who said anything about no mess? asked Al. Nothing especially odd about finding a cow with his head cut off if he's singing a whole mess of his own blood, is there? But you said bloodless. Inside and out, said Bill. That is peculiar. The stranger examined the stub of his cigarette between his fingers. Very peculiar indeed. He snapped it into the fire. The coyotes started again, much closer now. Bill gripped his gun tighter, his palms slick with sweat. Ah, I hate those sons of bitches. The stranger bent forward and picked something from the pile of miscellanea at his feet, dumped from his satchel. A glassy green rock, which seemed almost to glow dully in the light of the fire. You fellas see this? He held it in his palm in front of his face. Nothing else like it in the world. The two cowboys gazed half-interestedly at the crystal. I've seen about 15 look just like that this week, said Bill. The stranger shook his head. No, sir, I guarantee you have not.
He waited for further challenge or inquiry from his companions, but they offered none, and so he continued ahead anyway. This here rock is straight from the heavens. He pointed toward the stars with a crooked index finger. Came to Earth on a meteorite that crashed outside a barn I was staying in some years back, outside of Chattanooga. Thing was still glowing hot when I got to it. The cowboys eyed the rock with considerable interest now. No. I had many a geologist examine it, and they told me so themselves. Not enough dynamite on the planet to make a fire big enough and hot enough to form something like this. No, sir. Hell, this rock's probably older than the dirt we're sitting on. The stranger closed his eyes in a serene little grin, a low thrum coming from somewhere deep in his chest. And then he stood, his eyes suddenly wild and terrible, regarding each of his hosts in turn. He craned his neck forward and stamped one boot heel into the dust, toe turned outward. A detached grin stretched across his face, lips tinted red, as if the upper and lower halves of his face each belonged to different men. And then he added his own voice to the frenzy of the dogs, indistinguishable, whipping them to new heights of madness. He danced about the camp in spastic, manic rhythms, night drunk on the moon and the stars. The hosts fell to the earth, supplicated themselves. Their fates were written. The howls carried on, across the desert, and on. Miles down the mesa, a black iron train sat idling, brooding in the dark. It had not moved in nearly an hour. The smallish nocturnal animals which had fled the scene in its coming had begun to feel both emboldened and curious and were slinking back in trepid and trees at the hulking gothic beast. Every so often without warning, she would exhale in a sharp gust of steam and cause a great scattering. Her window lights glowed like pinpricks in the great dark of the world, a viewing car passing through eternity, little peepholes in the screen between here and everything else. Tom Garrett sat wedged on a bench and coach between a fat man and a corpse. The fat man was asleep, snoring loudly. The other had fallen asleep west of New Orleans and was yet to awaken. The conductor had taken his pulse and pronounced him dead shortly after lunch that afternoon. Tom had never even noticed that the man wasn't breathing. He was traveling alone, but word spread that he had kin in California, and so the decision was made in short order to ferry his remains the rest of the way there. It was a fully booked voyage, so he would have to remain where he sat. When Tom complained, the conductor said, he paid for his passage, same as you. The air in the car was heavy and smelled of sweat. Nobody spoke except now and then to whisper to a companion. The door at the rear of the car opened and the conductor stepped in. We should be moving along any minute now, he said, and then closed the door. Tom leaned forward and turned to look out the window. He saw only his own unshaven face, empty-eyed and half-translucent on a field of dark. The fat man was awake and eating from a sack of peanuts in his lap, adding to the small pile of shells between his feet. Tom eyed the dead man's watch, 
still gripped in his cold hand, still counting each passing second. He thought of swiping it and decided to wait until they arrived so that he could run if anyone accused him, if they ever arrived. He remembered the man checking the time constantly on the first day of the journey with an air of impatience, often accompanied by a craning of his neck to see down the aisle toward the door at the rear of the car. Each time the conductor appeared, the man would flag him down to ask if the lounge car had opened. Not yet, sir. He gave the same answer every time. You'll know when it's open. His smile grew less generous as the man grew more agitated with each passing hour. The fat man had finished eating and his spent peanut sack laid on the floor beside Tom's foot. Tom thought to see if the man had spared any drag of crumbs and decided to wait until he was asleep again. An hour passed, and the conductor did not appear. The train stayed stubbornly silent. The night dragged on. The fat man tried to sleep, found several positions untenable, and then started in on his third reading of the newspaper, which he kept beneath his spot on the bench. They must have lost the map, said someone toward the rear of the car. The fat man laughed, and laughed loud enough for several men, since nobody else would. He removed his spectacles to dab at the tears forming at the corner of his eyes. Oh, goodness. He sat grinning softly into his own lap and then chuckled to himself and shook his head as if he'd been privately reliving the joke and had just arrived once more at the denouement. We are sitting ducks out here. Someone speaking to no one in particular. Someone coughed. Who knows, if we turn down these lights, we might see 500 Comanche prowling around just outside the windows as we speak. Nobody said anything. A baby started to cry. Who on this train is armed? We will have to fight back. An Indian has no interest in your purses, only your scalps. They will come to murder every last one of us. The devils follow trains just like this, salivating at the very thought of your white blood. Would you shut up, said somebody else. Another hour passed, and still the train teased no movement. The fat man fell asleep once more. The dead man's watch read five. There was no inkling of dawn in the window. Tom shifted in his seat, sleep eluding him. The train shifted, sending an excited murmur through the car amongst those who were still awake. The dead man slid until his shoulder rested on the window. Something in his jacket pocket caught Tom's eye. It was an envelope, the red wax seal already broken. He slid it from the man's pocket between his index and middle fingers, glancing around to make sure he wasn't being watched. Inside he found an invitation, pressed into gold foil atop the parchment. The Voyeur's Club kindly requests your presence. You will be summoned by a conductor at the allotted hour. The door at the rear of the car slid open and the conductor appeared. Tom pocketed the letter. He could hear the conductor's footsteps moving down the aisle toward him. He stared at the back of the sleeping man in front of him. His eyes traced the Rorschach outline of the sweat patches there. The conductor stopped over Tom's shoulder, just to the right of his periphery. Tom stared at the man's back, feeling suddenly very cold. The conductor waited. He glanced then, only briefly, from the corner of his eye to give himself permission for a more thorough glance. The conductor held out a glass of water in his hand. For you, sir. Compliments of the company. For the... Here he tilted his brow toward the dead man. Inconvenience. 
Tom took the glass. He held it in his lap. The conductor did not leave, and for a long moment, Tom could feel his eyes on the back of his head. He was a general, you know. The fat man to his right was awake again, brushing crumbs from his beard. Say, have we moved? Tom shook his head and took a sip of the water. Not an inch. The conductor was gone. God almighty. The fat man took his watch from his shirt pocket. It needed winding. He tapped the glass face, looking down his nose at it, and then put it back. Do you know what's odd? I swear it must be almost five by now, if not six. We should have begun to see the sun. Tom looked outside and saw nothing but darkness. Shoot. You sure? Fairly. Tom leaned forward in his seat to check. If that ain't the strangest goddamn thing. The other man strained a bit in his seat, trying to peer out the window for himself, then said something like, hmm, with a small frown and a shrug of one shoulder, and settled back in for another nap, nuzzling his chin into his chest. His breathing soon took on the steady rhythm of sleep. Tom turned to look around the car. Most of the passengers were sleeping, or trying to. The rest seemed in a sort of waking sleep, eyes open but not perceiving anything without, staring at the black windows, gazing entranced at some interior abyss through their ghostly reflections, waiting, waiting. Some hours passed, and the train did not move, and the sun did not rise. Still, sleep eluded Tom. When the conductor appeared next, it was through the forward door, though Tom could not recall ever having seen him pass through the car. He spoke from the doorway, hands clasped behind his back. At this time, we would like to welcome any of our guests in possession of an invitation to join us in the lounge car. He turned and left and did not look at Tom once. The door slid shut behind him. Tom waited a moment and then glanced back at the rest of the car. Nobody was stirring. He stood and shimmied past the fat man and into the aisle. Nobody looked up when he opened the door. The next car was identical to the one he'd come from, as was the one after that, and the one after that. Nobody looked at him as he passed. The clothing and faces of the passengers varied a bit from car to car, and he thought that if he cared to look, he might find an alternate version of himself sitting in each of them. The fourth car was arranged much more spaciously, each passenger with their own row, and the fifth car was lined with private rooms. A man in a tuxedo welcomed him to an otherwise empty dining car with a placid smile and a small nod. The next car was darker, oil lamps barely glowing on mahogany walls. His feet sank into the rich scarlet carpet. A stout bald man with a heavy brow gazed warmly at Tom, blocking the doorway above which the letters V.C. were inscribed in ornate script. Tom produced his invitation. The doorman inspected the letter and then stepped aside. Tom entered. The interior room was scarcely better lit, but Tom's eyes were already beginning to adjust. Lush drapery and tufted couches lined either wall of the lounge, littered with lavishly dressed bodies, slouched in various states of sedated half-consciousness. The atmosphere was thick with the lingering smoke of burning incense and at least a dozen pipes, tobacco and opium, a reserved piano haunted the car beneath various and indistinguishable mumblings somewhere in the shadows, barely more than a whisper. With a great chung-chung, 
that could have come from the earth itself, the train lurched forward just a bit, groaning iron, a thin hiss of steam. The wheels squealed and then turned over, and the train began to build a slow, heavy momentum. They were moving. An eager murmuring moved through the lounge. A waiter approached Tom with a tray of champagne. A pair of naked bodies lay together on the far side of the car. A number of passengers were sitting on the couches upright, their muscles rigid, and their faces pressed to the walls. Tom moved closer and saw that they were staring through peepholes inlaid in the woodwork. For as long as Tom watched, none of them moved, seemed hardly even to breathe. Bubbles of white foam rose through their pursed lips, corners chalked with drool. Fancy a peek? The voice came from beneath Tom, and he realized he was leaning over someone. A young woman in a blue dress, lying flat on the couch, yawning. You'll have to fight old Cyrus here for it, I'm afraid. He's not too fond of sharing, in my experience. What's he looking at? asked Tom. She raised her eyebrows, the corner of her mouth curled in a lurid half-smile. As she stirred further into consciousness, her eyes took on a new clarity, a green intensity that transfixed Tom. Attention all patrons. At some point, the conductor had entered the lounge car. Please take note, we are now entering a tunnel. The woman sat straight up. Perhaps it was the shifting shadows, but Tom saw now that a stern seriousness had engraved itself upon her features. In this light, she was ten years older. She rested her hand upon her companion's shoulder. The tunnel, honey. We're going through the tunnel. He gave no response. She shook him a bit. Dearest, please, you're beginning to scare me. Around the car, the other guests were beginning reluctantly to peel themselves from the portals, falling into the arms of friends or lovers, or else into a drooling stupor among the strewn velvet pillowing, seeking their fill elsewhere in drink and smoke. The girl looked around, same as Tom, and saw what he saw. She shook her man harder, swatted him severely on the back. Would you get off of there? We'll be inside the tunnel any moment. The man was steadfast. His body swayed a bit as she rocked him with two pleading fistfuls of shirt fabric, but his face stuck stoic and firm to the portal. Get! The woman's words were reduced to grunts and pained little yips as she tried pressing her shoulder to his chest to move him and realized immediately she had not the strength for it. She looked with wild, darting eyes elsewhere around the cabin. Help! Someone, please! Hurry! Her pleas went totally ignored, and she let loose one last crazed banshee cry as she hooked her hands through the man's collar and put all of her weight against his. The sconce lanterns blew out, and the tunnel punctuated her efforts, diving the car into total darkness. Through the black heart of a mountain, the clattering thunder of the train rumbling over the tracks, echoing all around and collapsing back in upon their heads, burying them. They gained speed, hurrying down into oblivion, rolling back and forth on the rails, teetering at either extreme. Drink carts shifted and crashed in the dark. The woman wept quietly at Tom's feet. Tom could hear the man in front of him jabbering, low and guttural, half beneath the level of hearing, barely louder than a whisper. He wasn't sure he heard it at all over the raucous of the train. Something between a laugh and a long, drawn-out moan. It grew in volume and sent a primeval chill down Tom's back. 
The wheels screamed, screeching down the rails, ever faster, faster and faster still. Concerned whispers floated around in the dark. Someone cleared their throat. The train ran, as if trying to escape the tunnel, but the tunnel would not relent. The man's laughter grew louder and more distinct, manic, pained. It soon turned to screaming, howling in animal agony, unfiltered cries from the depths of his being. His torso began to shift and squirm in his seat, and then he slapped his palms to the wall as if trying to push himself away. Yet he remained. The train rocked and jostled and jumped wildly down the tracks at the brink of control. The screams did not echo in the plush cabin, but were swallowed, nearly whole, so that they seemed almost to die even before they began. And then they stopped entirely. The woman continued to cry. The tunnel would not give them up. The train whistle wailed madly in the dark, piercing men's souls, denouncing some deranged arrival. Little blue flashes in the windows filled the interior with light, freezing frames of wretched debauchery upon Tom's eyes, hardly long enough to tell if he was really seeing them or if his useless, struggling eyes had been malfunctioning with imagination whenever he blinked. The conductor never moved, but he was approaching him all the same. Tom felt cold hands, ice-cold hands in the dark, reaching out for him, hovering millimeters above his skin, faint hairs standing rigid with electricity. And then, there was light. The lanterns came to life. They emerged from the tunnel and saw the stars in the sky framed in the windows. The man collapsed back into his woman's arms. She brushed his hair from his face, ghastly pale. His eyes were wide and mournful and stared into the long distance, out past the stars and past man's knowing. A bespectacled man in coattails with a full white mustache approached the scene with a leather bag, which he placed on the ground at the girl's feet. It clung heavily with all manner of tools. He examined the man's slackened face closely and then cupped it in his massive hand. He spread his eyelids apart to examine his pupils and then opened his mouth up for a look. He took the man's pulse and listened to his heart and seemed satisfied. How do you feel? he asked his patient. The patient did not answer. No need to worry. You'll be all right. He turned to the woman. He's just had a bit of a shock. He patted her on the back and removed his spectacles, placing them delicately in his shirt pocket. Then with his leathery hands, he opened the clasp on his bag and removed a razor which, in one movement, he unfolded and slid across the neck of the patient in a burbling scarlet grin, opening him for a viscous torrent. The patient's stupefied expression needn't change, and so he sat there like an idol, pouring his life forth into a black puddle glistening between his shoes. Both shimmered darkly with the wraith-like flickering of the lantern light. The doctor wiped the blade clean and replaced it in his bag, the blood continued to pool. A few men shook the doctor's hand and quietly thanked him. The man tottered in place with the rollicking of the train, his mouth moving fish-like, making silent vowels. The entire car watched in silence. Behind all of their unblinking eyes, Tom detected something which he could only describe as a deep and abiding hunger. Then the man collapsed and was gone. Thank mm -hmm. you.
the final story in the White Sands trilogy, in the shadow of Mount Terror, or the appalling silence, will be available soon. <laughs>